Good morning. Good morning. So thankful to be here. Let me try to take care of the computer. Put us on the right path. I have my good friend John who's going to run the clicker. That's the official name of that thing. Hopefully it'll work from that distance. We did try it out. I'm thankful to see all of you here. Thankful that you've spread yourselves out among the auditorium so that those who are watching online think that I'm preaching to a huge audience as I look from one side to the other. I wanted to start with a story back from when I was in the ninth grade. So we're going back four, maybe five years. <laughs> yep, start the lesson off with a lie. <laughs> the year was about 1975. Some of the best and worst songs were written that year. But when I played football in the ninth grade, I was a tiny guy at the time, much smaller than I am now. I can remember envying the guys who weighed 125 pounds. By the way, I still envy guys that weigh 125 pounds but for a whole different reason. I was getting creamed in football. I mean, they were tearing me apart. Despite the fact that I grew up in a farming area and we beat each other up for fun pretty much, we played a game of football that was, it had a really bad name, so I won't say it, but uh, we tore each other apart. But when I got on to organized football, I was just so small. There was a guy on our team, I won't call his name just in case he's watching, but uh, he weighed about 200 pounds in ninth grade. And so he could just walk through all of us. He played defense and uh, they tried, tried me out as a running back and I was just so tiny. I'd hit these guys and it was like hitting a wall. And they'd say, pump your legs. And it's like, I am, I am, but I'm not going anywhere. Finally, they put me on defense as a, uh, cornerback and I thought I'm gonna be quarterback how cool is that I didn't know a cornerback even existed but they put me out there and I can remember tackling our fullback a guy named Steve and I won't use his last name either and when I brought him to the ground at the end of the play I'm laying there he's sitting on my head and my mask is the face mask is broken on the helmet the helmet has carved in my forehead. I'm bleeding all over the place. The coach is all excited. Great tackle, Faulkner. And I'm thinking, really? That's what it takes to be a great tackle, to bleed in front of everyone? When the games came, because I was so small, sometimes I wasn't all that eager to get out there. And I remember the coach asking, Faulkner, are you here to play? Let's fast forward a number of years. I was visiting my sister in Boston. And I was in a, a tougher part of town and I was the minority and I went to the local Church of Christ there and the preacher got out of his car and he says, he just looked at me and he said, are you where you want to be? And that question has stuck with me all these years. And I wonder sometimes, kind of like the question in our reading, who do you say that I am? Are you where you want to be? Many times we do things just to please other people, whether it's other people in the congregation, other people in the family. We're not really into it completely with our whole heart. Now, I'm sure you might say that's 
probably the case at work sometimes. You don't go in every single day and it's like, man, thanks for the coffee this morning. You know, I'm so happy to be here. You just go in and sit down and especially during the pandemic that's changed everything. And your heart might not be there. You may even go through the motions sadly sometimes as a parent. You know, my mother raised nine children and I know that there were times when her whole heart wasn't into changing the diaper. You know, I was like, I've been doing this for 20 years. I'm really getting tired of it. Sadly, sometimes people come to church just because they have to, because it's the right thing to do, but they're, they may even get baptized to make someone else happy. You've heard that happen before. Kids will go to camp and all the other kids are baptized. And so they'll say, well, okay, just to get you off my back, I'll go ahead and do this. But as far as their hearts being in it, as far as loving the Lord, they just don't really feel it. Now I've made it kind of my life's work to be a permanent greeter. So at, at Rural Hill, especially pre-pandemic, I was always out there greeting. I just loved to do it. I felt like if I can make the first person you see be happy, then maybe that'll change the color of your day and make it a little bit happier. And you'd say, good morning, how you doing? And somebody will say, well, I'm here. I'm thinking, really? So your response to good morning is I haven't died yet. Well, yeah, but isn't there a little more than that? But sometimes that's all you can muster. <clears throat> sometimes you may sit in an auditorium full of people and, and you'll look at brother or sister so-and-so and you'll say, I wish I had what they seem to have. They seem to sing with a level of joy that's just beyond me. I don't know how to get from where I am to where they are. And when the last amen comes, well, it's like a scene from the flash. <laughs> We're gone so quick, you had better say bye right now because I'm out of here. We may want to worship and to live like brother or sister so-and-so, but we just can't seem to get there. It's not real for us to do it. There's a very popular phrase in the religious world when we speak about salvation. It's the idea of, well, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? You'll hear that a lot on television. We don't hear that a lot in the churches of Christ. Uh, in fact, if you ask a lot of church leaders, even in this town, am I saved? They'll come back with the question, well, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Ever since I started studying the Bible, and I started young, I started in my pre-teens, really reading and studying. And there was a rule, and it wasn't a house rule, so I don't know where it came from. My father never really believed. So the rule either came from my mother or I just figured it out from reading the Bible myself. But I came to a conclusion that if it wasn't in the Bible, then it wasn't something I was going to go with as truth. Everything religious, spiritual, everything to do with eternity had to be from the Bible. I went to a local uh, Presbyterian church as a teenager that was built probably up the same year that this building was built. 
And they asked me to teach the teen class, which I thought was odd because I was a teen and I was a visitor, but they asked me to teach. And it, the reason was the teacher wanted to go to adult class that was starting up that she really wanted to see. And so, Dave, you seem to be interested in the Bible. How would you like to teach? Uh, okay. And so I went home and I got my Cruden's Concordance and I just started studying because I was determined if I was going to teach it in a Bible class, it had to come out of the Bible. I think that's still pretty solid. That if it's not in the Bible, why, are, why would we teach it? So that's why I'm not a big fan of this phrase, accepting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, because I don't see it at least worded like that in the Bible. When the Holy Spirit, through Peter, convinced the hearts of thousands in Acts chapter 2 that they had, in fact, either personally taken part in the crucifixion of Jesus or at least said okay to the idea, they were cut to the heart and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And they mean, we realize we crucified God's son. Now, you may think you're guilty of some things, but you don't think you're guilty of that. Imagine how badly they felt. Was Peter's answer, oh, well, you need to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. No, he didn't say that. He told them to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. When Saul was on his way to Damascus with a letter that gave him the authority to drag Christians off and be put into prisons and even killed, Jesus himself appears to him on the way and tells him he blinds him first off which puts you at a weakness where i think weakness is one of god's strengths when you are weak then he can speak to you and so he sent him to damascus and he spoke to ananias there a local christian who was not real fond of the idea of having a chat with a man who dragged christians off to be killed and what did ananias tell Saul, oh, well, accept Jesus Christ as your... No, he didn't say that. But he taught him the truth, and they went off and immersed him into Christ. However, because the phrase isn't necessarily worded like that, there are some ideas in that phrase that are very biblical, especially the idea of Jesus being personal to you. What many of us lack, I'm afraid, is a personal relationship with the Savior. We may believe that our salvation comes because we're with this good group of people right here. You know, as long as you're on the right bus, you're going to go to the right place. You don't need to know the name of the driver, do you? Who cares who he is as long as you're on the right bus? So some people feel as long as I'm in the right building with the right people, I'm going to be okay. Do I need this personal relationship you're talking about we may feel that well as long as i'm doing the right things as long as i'm praying and i'm giving the good causes i'm avoiding the really bad stuff i haven't stolen from anybody in weeks you know so i should be good there i'm not committing adultery i'm assured of my place in heaven right compared to the really bad people in society i look pretty good so I should be okay. I don't need this personal relationship, do I? But what did Jesus agree was the greatest command in the law? 
He asked a fellow who was an expert in the law. Some versions call him a lawyer. Some others just say that he was an expert in the law. Somebody who was really familiar with the law of Moses. What's the greatest? And the guy says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to that expert in the law, you have answered correctly. <clears throat> now remember, who is this guy talking to? He's talking to the one who authored the law. He's talking to God in the flesh. So you know his answer is going to be right. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Doesn't this sound a lot like that idea of making sure you have a personal, loving relationship with the Savior? Love the Lord your God. The first most important thing is not getting all your ducks in a row religiously, making sure that you have everything lined up. I'm giving my 10% or whatever, whatever it is. You know, I'm doing all the, the things in the law of Moses just right. Jesus says, no, the most important thing is to love me. The most important thing. That's still the case. That didn't change with the disappearance of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Love him. Love God more than anyone else. Over the years, my wife and I have been asked when we would go out for like an anniversary dinner and the waitress will say, oh, well, what's the secret? You know, because they want to know. We've been married 23 years. You know, the average, and I know this is true because I asked Google. So, you know, it has to be right. This morning, I actually sat there and I thought, well, I wonder what the average is. So I said, hey, Google, that's how she wakes up. What is the average length of a marriage in the United States? And in a second, that amazes me still how all that works. In a second, she comes back with, the average marriage lasts 8.2 years in the United States. So people will ask us, what is the secret? Now, when you're out on your anniversary and someone asks that question, you don't default to something sarcastic because you want to make 24, right? So I'll sit and think about it. And to me, honestly, the answer is, we both have to love God more than we love each other. Because if I love God more than even my spouse, who I love more than any other human on the planet, if I love God more than her, then when I get really mad, I'm going to do what he says. And when she gets really mad, and if you're married to me, that has to happen. She defaults to what would God have me do here? Loving God the most is the number one thing. God, the invisible master of the universe, wants little baby Faulkner. I know I'm 
I'm 60 now. I say that and I don't even understand what that means because to me, 60 is a number way out there still. Even though I've been doing this for 60 years, still, 60 is where old people are, right? But I still see myself as little Davy Faulkner. The master, the creator of the universe wants me and wants you to love him completely. That's the most important thing. Not get everything else right in your life. He wants that too. But most important is to love him. So this idea of accepting him, making him personal is very important. And he wants me to not just love him, but to agape love him. If you've been in church any length of time, you've heard the word agape. And you understand that it is a type of love that is greater than the love that you have inside of the family. Greater than a love that a husband and wife share. Those things are both given to us by God and are right and good. But the love that God has for us and that we are to have for him is a greater kind of love than even that. Agape love says, I'll do the right thing for you no matter what. That's what he wants from us. Jesus says, do this and you will live. You know, if I think that Jesus just came to save the world, but I don't make it personal, I can't answer the question, uh, who do you think that I am? If I just think it's a general, like he reigns on the whole world, he sends sun on the whole world, in some places more than others, uh, but I don't take it personally, then I'm probably not going to love him to the depth that he's looking for. God says in Romans 5 and verse 6, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. And this is true, but this sounds a little bit general still. Is this about me personally? Let's look at another one. In John 3, 16, very famous. It used to be really famous at ball games. I'm not sure why it, it disappeared. You used to always have those signs up at a game. Now it seems to be no more. Maybe they pass a rule. For God so loved the world, that's still pretty general, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes, well, now we've narrowed it down because now it's not everybody. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Well, I believe. So this verse is about me. Whoever believes, that's me. Do you believe? That's you. He's talking about you. This is personal. God did this for you. There's more. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. If you've grown up always feeling good about yourself, which probably means your parents did a good job raising you, you should feel good about yourself. But if you're one of those millions and millions of people who sometimes has a lot of doubt, to know that the Creator wants to call you a child of God, that if you are in Christ, you're special. That means something. In 1 John, the next couple of verses, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, 
we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is personal. He is doing something for me, for little baby Faulkner, and you need to take that personal that he's done this for you too. That the God of the whole universe cares about what you do, not just the big guys in the Bible, the Abrahams, Isaacs, Moses, all these people, not just those folks, not just your preachers and your elders and deacons and things, but you, every single one of us, he cares about what you do. He wants you to love him more than anything else. This past week, I asked a half dozen good brothers a question. Just, I was wondering, this question that Jesus asks, I feel like I've just skipped a big section, I have. Hopefully you're keeping up there, John. Uh, slide number nine. <clears throat> Jesus. Uh, yeah, we want to come back to this question. Jesus asked. And by the way, you may wonder about this picture. Several years ago, and I'm not sure how many, I'd say 10, which means it's probably 20. But <clears throat> they tried to figure out what would Jesus really look like based on where he was born and raised and all the nationalities and the time period and everything. And this is what they came up with. And I'm perfectly fine, of course, because he's the son of God. I know that Isaiah says he wasn't anything to look at. Generally, when we do movies, we put somebody up there who's, you know, like, wow, that's a handsome guy right there. Well, Isaiah tells us that he wasn't really all that handsome. He wasn't anything that we would look at him and go, hey, look at him. He was just a regular guy because that wasn't the important part. This was the son of God giving us grace and truth, giving us salt and light. But he asks, who do you say that I am? When you are telling somebody else about me, Jesus says, who do you say I am? Deep down in your heart, who do you really think Jesus is? That's an important question. Do you think that he's a really good person, like your Gandhis or your Mother Teresa's or Marshall Keeble, people who have done great things for humanity through the years. But maybe he's not a god. He's just a really good person. Or do you think, like they did back then, that he's a prophet? Jesus is not God himself, but he was sent by God. He can do some amazing things. But God himself, maybe not so much. And then Jesus asked, do you think that I'm actually God. And that's the answer that Peter gave him. Now I'll get to what I was saying just a minute ago that I did ask some brothers just a couple of weeks ago this question. Should we ask a question like this? You know, when someone's baptized, quite often what we'll do is say, all right, repeat after me. And so they'll say whatever you say. You'll say, oh, I believe Jesus Christ, Son of God. They say, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And we say, based upon this confession, we baptize you into Christ. And I believe that they're saved as a result of that. But I wonder, could we get more of what they actually feel if we ask them a question like this? Who do you say that Jesus is? Understanding that if a, a person is getting baptized in front of a crowd of people, and you ask them a question like that, they might just freeze up. So you gotta take that into consideration. But God does want us to confess who he is. Whether we freeze up or not, 
I had to do an oral book report in seventh grade, whether I froze up or not. Whew, it was ugly. Standing there with my cards, working them like crazy because I'm so nervous, shot them out over the whole front row, and there was the end of my book report right there. I had to do it. God says, if you won't acknowledge me in front of people, or Jesus says that, I won't acknowledge you in front of the Father. So it's important. He says that with the heart you believe and are justified, but with your mouth you confess and are saved. I kind of left the notes there. I know that, uh, it's difficult to follow. Now I know what Dan's wife goes through every week. When I was baptized back in 1981, so it'll be 40 years this fall, the brothers there in Scotland asked me some usual questions, and then they said, what would you do if we didn't baptize you, if we just chose not to? Well, I had studied long enough with them and knew the Bible well enough. I said, well, I'll find somebody who will. And they said, that's exactly what we wanted to hear. We wanted to know that this was real to you, that you knew you were lost. And without being immersed into Christ and having your sins washed away, you would be lost. And we can tell that you know that. So they asked a little bit of an unorthodox question there. I think we may be too afraid sometimes to offend people with a question like this. Who do you say that I am? We may be too uncertain about what we believe to hold anybody else to it, even though what we believe is the plain teaching of Scripture. Because we live in a society that says, you can't hold me to the things you believe. <clears throat> the Bible may mean this to you, but it doesn't mean that to me. But Jesus says, I am the way. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now in our mind, we may water that down and say, okay, Jesus is saying I am a way, but not really necessarily the only way, but he's not. He's saying I am the way. The last thing we ever want to be accused of in America is being an elitist or an exclusive person, saying that other people aren't saved. We don't want to be guilty of that kind of thing because then you're seen as someone who hates but when Jesus says I am the way what he is saying is there is no other way but through me so this question who is Jesus has been important for 2,000 years they have fought and fought and fought over this idea and Jesus didn't wear a name tag you know I am God or anything like that with the other apostles having theirs name tags as well, but he was declared by the Father to be his son. And he admitted this himself. And his godliness was evidenced by his words and by his deeds. And that idea was accepted by his apostles. Jesus is God. Didn't the Father say on at least two occasions, this is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Once at his baptism in Matthew 3, once on the Mount, Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Remember when Thomas needed a little more than someone's word that Jesus had actually risen from the dead? He says, unless I touch him, 
I've got to see him alive. I've got to touch him or I'm not going to believe. And when he was able to, what did he exclaim? My Lord and my God. John 20, 28. Jesus asks him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet will believe. What had Thomas come to believe at that point in time? That Jesus had been raised from the dead and he was actually God. He was actually God. He was standing there and he it all came together for him at that point. This man in front of me is God. Can you imagine? I just, I, I can't. But blessed are those Christians 2,000 years later, sitting in this building here right now, who believe but have never seen Jesus. You're here. You could be home, preparing for a ball game or doing whatever you do on Sunday. Some people think it's the greatest day of the week because they get to sleep in and read the paper and all this kind of stuff. But you are here worshiping because even though you've never seen Jesus, you know that it's true. He is actually God. Jesus asked the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He said, Oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You see, Jesus knew who he was. He accepted this. I am the Christ. He knew what his role was. I am the Messiah who's bringing salvation to the earth. But the mere idea that this man could be God was blasphemy to the Jews. What are you saying? The Jews told Pilate, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. How bold is that? John 19, 7. Believers and unbelievers alike have fought with the concept of Jesus being both God and man ever since the beginning. And why is that? Because you've never seen anyone like it. It's so incomprehensible. We don't have something on earth we can compare it to. It's like when you try to explain to somebody the idea of a trinity or something like that, the Godhead. And so you put together some earthly example that's supposed to somehow emulate the actual creator being three in one and so, you know, if you're like me, you bring out a can of three and one, oh, it's just like this here. Well, that didn't work very well. So then you put three candles together. See, they all have the same light. And it's like, well, okay, but they're candles. It's difficult to do. Well, it's really difficult for us to understand the idea that Jesus is not just a man sent by God, but is actually God. Because we have nothing with which to compare it. <clears throat> This idea is something that you don't get by grasping the evidence. You get this by that five-letter word, and I hope it's actually five letters, faith. Yes, thank you very much. It is by faith. Romans 1.17 says, the righteous shall live by faith. Why is that? Because faith is the substance of things hoped for. What do you hope for? I hope for a home in heaven when this life is over. 
I hope for spiritual blessings during this life, but I don't have anything I can grab a hold of to say that's gonna happen, and so I rely on faith. Faith that when God says it's gonna happen, it's really gonna happen. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. I can't take a man who doesn't believe and show him God. I can't do that. And some people say, because of my logical mind, I have to have that kind of evidence, but they don't. Scientists have been believers all along. Believers exist in every walk of life because of faith. We live by faith. You need something more solid than sight, than evidence, try faith. We have scientific proof that will come out in 2021 that a year ago was wrong. You know, the one that bugs me the most is that it seems like every couple of years they change the idea of whether or not my coffee is good for me. I can't stand that because I'm gonna drink it either way. But during the years when coffee's good for you, woohoo, here we are, I'm having two cups this morning. And then they'll come out and say, oh, we just found out that, you know, coffee causes hair loss. I think I can get over that. Let's have another cup. Science changes, but as Peter says in his first epistle, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. It's not going to change. By faith, I believe that the man Jesus Christ was and is God's son in human form, that he gave up his position in heaven in order to come to earth as a human being, that he was born of a woman called Mary, that his goal was to seek and save the lost by paying the death penalty which was due all of us because of our sin, because we put our own will in front of that of our Creator. By faith, I say that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised Savior spoken of by the prophets of old. By faith, I believe that he was crucified, and after that he died as any human would die, and was buried. But on the third day, by faith, I believe he rose from the dead. And this was witnessed by hundreds and hundreds of people. By faith, I say that Jesus' resurrection sets the stage for my own. And for yours, if you'll believe. By faith, I think that when my time on this earth is done, I have a home prepared by him waiting for me. Not because I've been better than the average Joe, or because I've won some spiritual lottery, but because God has made it possible for every single one of us who decides that the gospel story is true and who turns his life over to God's will, turning away from his sin, and confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, I believe this person will be saved will go to a heavenly home which Jesus has been preparing for us. So how do you answer the question? Who do you say that I am? Are you recognized by everyone as a believer but deep down you still struggle? Most of us will find at some point that other people think better of us than we think of ourselves. The people will come up to us and say, I wish I had the faith you had. And you're thinking, you don't know the struggles I've had. 
Are you here or there online every week faithfully, but you know that your relationship to the God of the Bible is less than personal? Are you fully aware, sadly, that there's no way you're gonna make it to heaven, but you want desperately for God to fix you? If you're online, please call us at the numbers you'll see on the webpage or email us and let us know how we can help you. If you're right here, feel free to come down front or to talk to us afterwards, but let us know how we can help you. We will pray with you. We will study the word of God with you, but we don't want you to go into the next day not sure about your relationship with the Father. He has done so much for us. We are so blessed beyond what any of us deserve. If you have any needs at all, let us know as we stand and sing.